Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Aaron Powell. And I'm Trevor Burrs. Our guest today is Alan Levinovitz. He's Associate Professor of Religion at James Madison University and author of Natural, How Faith in Nature's Goodness Leads to Harmful Fads, Unjust Laws, and Flawed Science. Welcome to the show, Alan. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I think it was the year that I graduated high school. One of the biggest stories was Dolly the Sheep. So maybe that's a good spot to start. Who was Dolly and why did she cause such a stir? Well, Dolly, for yes, for those of us who remember, it was really big news. She was a clone. She was a cloned sheep. And as you might expect, objections to cloning her took a familiar form. People were accusing the scientists of being like Dr. Frankenstein and also another familiar refrain of playing God. And so the 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 example of Dolly the sheep, which I bring up briefly in, in the book, is a really good one for thinking about the broader issues of biases against what people perceive as unnatural and also the connection, which might not seem very natural, uh, if you'll pardon the pun, to some people, between rejecting what is unnatural and and religion, which is the, the case that I want to make in the book. And the idea of playing God is a really nice way of connecting the two. In that, I remember that Aaron and I are roughly the same age. It struck me as interesting, and this comes up a lot in genetic modification in general, that it's philosophically difficult to differentiate between, say, forced breeding and strict genetic modification via the genome. I mean, maybe if you're using, you know, microscopes and stuff, that makes a difference. But, you know, carrots and cows and everything else look way different because of what we did to them. So in that, between those two extremes and in the middle, it would say, some people would say there's a natural and there's an unnatural, but is there a really good definition of natural at all to begin with? I actually think that there is. There are some philosophers who want to argue that everything is natural, humans are natural, therefore all of our tools are natural, uh, there's no difference between a skyscraper and an anthill. I don't think that's a helpful approach. So my rough and ready definition of natural is organization without human intention. And unnatural is organization by human intention. And of course, these exist on a spectrum. You do have things that are purely natural, which is to say anything that existed before humans. So, you know, if you go back far enough, when humans didn't exist, everything was natural because human intention didn't exist. And then as soon as humans appear on the scene, I think it's reasonable and helpful to distinguish between those forms of organization or those actions that are influenced by or depend on human intention and those that aren't. So New York City is less natural than Yellowstone, even if Yellowstone Park is not completely natural, and even if New York City does have some natural elements to it. Is there a difference between natural and nature? Yes. I mean, not just not just grammatically. Well, I guess um, I mean, what I mean I, is like, are, are things that are in nature by definition natural, or is everything that's happening in nature? Because we we get like the kind of going back to the arguments about going back to nature, pulling from nature. So it seems to be like a thing, like a unified thing in the way that a lot of this is used, whereas the way that you describe natural is more a characteristic. Yes, I understand what you're saying. To the extent that nature is a place where 
the forms of organization and the types of activity are predominantly non-willed by humans. I think it is a place. So when people say go back to nature, I think often what they mean is occupy a home that is more like the kinds of homes that exist with animals. The, the, the form of the home itself was not something willed by humans or invented by humans. Or they mean to eat foods that if you if if you existed before humans, um, you might have seen those kinds of foods. So so nature is the idealized place in which human intention is absent. Um, and in that sense, you can see the same sort of thing in 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 terms of phrase like act naturally. What people mean, I think, is something like don't intend your action, but allow it to be spontaneous. Um, and that's an interesting connection as well the, between spontaneity and naturalness, because spontaneity, again, has the sense of unwilled. The word organic is related to that idea of spontaneity. So something that is natural, something that is organic. In other words, it was it was bottom up and spontaneous rather than top down and willed by some individual or set of individuals. And all of those, of course, it doesn't take a lot of reflecting to realize that there are positive associations with the idea of what is organic or what is spontaneous. A grassroots movement is much better than something that has been astroturfed, which is a really interesting phrase. It captures sort of the 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 feeling of betrayal, that here was this thing that was natural. It was grassroots, it was real grass, and then it was replaced by a simulacrum of the grass made made to look as if it's grass, but actually it's plastic and it's astroturf and it was top down. Um, so, you, so right there, you have a lot of the things that I'm saying sort of captured and, and, and also, you know, makes a difference. There is a difference between grass and astroturf. So I don't want to, I don't want to say that there, there aren't important differences between the two or even that you can't value what's natural. In other words, I, I, I don't come down saying it's absurd to value what's natural. It's just that you shouldn't worship it. Yeah. On that positive connotation because the way it's used as you pointed out is you could just say that people use the word natural or artificial um or, or whatever other sort of opposite of natural word we're going to use as a peer category to say well i prefer natural remedies to uh you know the remedies given to me by pharmaceutical companies or something you could say that that sentence could be just entirely positive without any normative connotations whatsoever, that they're just talking about natural versus, you know, artificial created by big pharma. But everyone hears that as saying, I endorse natural remedies qua natural because there's something metaphysically important about naturalism. And as I think in your book, as you point out, like it has a religious connotate or can't have religious undertones to it. Absolutely. The, so the aesthetic part is certainly an important one. I think it would be a weird, and again, these philosophers who want to claim that everything is natural end up going down this path. But it's a very strange position to take that you're foolish to, or you're, it's an illusion that get that yellow, you know, go out hiking on your own. You can't see any cars, or you can't see any phone lines, you can't hear the sounds of the city or whatever it is. Um, I, I think it's just a weird position to take that that's a mistaken aesthetic preference. I think it makes a lot of sense. I don't know anyone who doesn't have something in their life where they prefer the natural, whether it's uh, natural plants versus artificial plants. Um, you know, it can be disappointing. You're like, oh, these are just a bunch of plastic plants here. Um, I also think that there's a metaphysical feature to that aesthetic preference, which is this. Natural, nature, that the force of nature that organizes things is something that exists beyond and before human beings. And you don't have to be religious in the traditional sense of believing in, a, in God 
to think that that's just incredible. I mean, it's incredible that somehow things come together and organize themselves and life forms exist and and planets exist. I mean, it's just absolutely mind-boggling. And so if when someone prefers what's natural, natural birth is a great example of this. What they're saying is, I want to connect or feel a relationship to that force because that force is incredible and mysterious and beautiful and awe-inspiring. I say more power to you. It's when people want to also say that force is like the monotheistic God of Abrahamic religions. It is all good and all powerful and lays out laws for how we ought to live life, you know, our lives. And therefore any departure from that form of organization is bad or unholy or impure. And I think all too often people who prefer natural medicine or natural birth end up making that leap rather than staying in what is a, a sort of metaphysical preference, but but one that doesn't also assert the the divinity of of nature. Is there a assumed or implied or unconscious like impurity of man attitude in that that I mean to pick up on your Abrahamic thing almost like an original sin because obviously lots of animals change the natural environment in all sorts of ways that can have long-term effects on it. And through their interactions with each other, they change each other. I mean, there's evolution, but there's also social changes. Like there's humans are doing things to change our environment, but it's not like we're alone in that. But that sort of stuff doesn't seem to bother, you know, ants refiguring a like a landscape or whatever is not a big issue. So is there is part of this that there's something impure about humankind ourselves or the kind of thing that we do that distinguishes it from what's natural? Absolutely. There's an assumption of human impurity or absence of wisdom or hubris is another form of the same thing. And uh, again, uh, on the one hand, I appreciate that if what people are wary of when they're wary of unnatural interventions is something like, well, there are systems that are homeostatic or approach homeostasis, the human body ecosystems, and humans through their technological and intellectual power have the ability to intervene quickly in those kinds of systems and affect enormous changes, which are can be good, um, I mean, depending on how you define it, but also can be very bad. And and they are of a scope and scale. I think it's reasonable to say other organisms can't achieve. Uh, if that's if that's what people are are wary of when they're wary of the unnatural, I think that I think that's very reasonable. However, that that needs to come with the flip side, which is that we're also capable of extraordinary good. And you will never see, for example, people people often blame the unnaturalness of something for the harm that it causes, but they will never praise the unnaturalness. No one will ever say, people often say, you know, oh, you shouldn't have built, it wasn't natural to build houses, you know, that area of Florida, which is why they're all collapsing. But no one will say, oh, the eyeglasses are beneficial because they're so unnatural. It's, it's, you never see things praised for their unnaturalness. So there's an asymmetry to it. And I think that goes to your point, which is that we have this, this deep bias or skepticism about the abilities of 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 humans to affect organization wisely. And I I honestly think 
this has changed over time and it's different across cultures. Another question I get is, has that always been the case? And it has not always been the case in part because nature was more dangerous than it is today. Our encounters with nature are sanitized. You don't run into the wolves that used to be in Yellowstone Park or the bears. Um, But that said, there has always been a kind of preference for spontaneity. This was something I was really surprised by in my research, cross-culturally and trans-historically. So in classical China, the term ziran literally means self-so or so of itself. It's often translated as nature, but it's that which is so of itself as opposed to that which is modified by humans. And that was romanticized by certain strains of proto-Daoist thought. And I think the idea is something like, how could humans improve on the spontaneous forms of organization. Look around. It was the kind of uh, God's answer to Job, right? Did you make the whales? Did you make the mountains? Did you are you, did you put the stars in the sky? Well, if we didn't do any of those things, how could we improve on that? Surely any intervention is likely to be bad. Yeah, I like you mentioned that before regarding spontaneity and authenticity, and and these are almost they have a. They have a, almost synonyms in the way that people use them. Like, what comes out spontaneously is is what is authentic. So, if you're a musician, you know it's preferable to to do something, uh, you know, sort of off the cuff and just bang on a guitar and sing something, versus sit down and meticulously sculpt out a song and every note. Manufactured and, and that, pop music. Yeah, but the, and that's interesting too because that's there's something very post-war rock and roll about that. I mean, it may be kind of a universal truth, but I don't think that like Beethoven, they said, well, Beethoven, you should just sit down and just, you know, write a symphony like as quickly as possible off the cuff, as authentic as possible. No, they, they liked the meticulousness of it, but when it comes to folk and country and thing and rock music, it's, there's a, there's a authenticity to it. And I think that's very much again, tied up with concepts of natural that the order, the, the, the intentional ordering of the notes is sort of like an intentional ordering of a city, whereas a rock song can be like a forest kind of thing. You know, again, though, this is, the, I don't think it's a contemporary thing. So you think about the, I mean, I'm no, I'm no classicist, but the term, you know, sing in me, sing through me, muse, right? Sing, that this idea that what poets and artists are doing is not, in fact, imposing their own artifice onto the world, but but channeling, acting as a conduit for the forces that that are that are be, again beyond and before humans. It's a it's a it's a beautiful and powerful idea. It's just not true. I mean it's just not how it works, right? These the musicians that are you know, Charlie Parker improvising on the sax or you know someone playing a blues guitar. So they spend hundreds of hours doing doing scales and 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 training themselves so that in that moment they could produce this spontaneous thing. So I think I, I do think there's something deeply problematic about the illusion of spontaneity that we attach to art, which itself has this <laughs> artificiality built into the built into the the very word. But I it's a nice connection that you're making. And I think we would do better to understand genius not as the absence of needing any editing or interference or help, which is, you know, but 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 something else entirely. So we really do romanticize that as if it, something is lesser when it needed to be crafted. I mean, it, it's absurd, but it's true. I, I hadn't really thought about it that way. Is there a connection between this quest for spontaneity and I suppose like looking for easy answers that don't require putting in the work? So we have a natural, you know, solving cancer is a really hard problem. 
that a lot of people are putting a lot of effort into and we're grinding away at it, but we haven't solved it. But if we can just like have, you know, realize that it's actually just lemon juice or something can cure it, then we found an easy answer. And if I can just noodle on the guitar and be a genius, then I don't have to spend those hundreds of hours practicing the chords so I can improvise well. Is it like a back way around expertise? Yes. And I wouldn't say it's necessarily about ease. It's related to something that I think is very important and neglected in, in, in all sorts of features of our analysis of modernity, which is something that historians of technology and philosophers of technology call epistemic opacity, which is basically when, when you are unable to know how something works. And the classic example of this, of increasing epistemic opacity is automobiles. Um, so, you know, used to be you could pop the hood and, you know, anyone with the working knowledge of a car could figure out what was wrong and pop a smart plug in. And now you pop the hood of your Prius. And like, what the hell is going on here? Same thing with your phone. Um, and what I believe a contemporary, but also previous um, attachment to nationalists is, is, is they, people want epistemic trans- transparency. It's extremely disempowering to feel like you don't understand how anything works. And so the cancer is a great example, which is that you become a patient in medicine. You go in, you don't understand what these chemicals are. You don't know how they're made. You don't know where they come from. You don't exactly understand how they work. And and that opacity is very disempowering. And I used to scoff at that word, empowerment. You'd see it all the time. Every single alternative medicine practitioner uses this word. and. I was just like, why do you, what, like, who cares? Isn't what you care about curing your illness? Isn't, isn't that what matters? But now I've realized that epistemic opacity is very alienating. It just sucks to move through a world where you feel like you don't understand how anything is produced or how anything works. And especially when you're sick, seeking a kind of transparency in the intervention, even if it's difficult, is is empowering. And that empowerment is important. And so it's really, honestly, in a lot of ways made me more sympathetic. I mean, if vaccine refusal is at least in part a rejection of epistemic opacity and the desire for epistemic transparency, whether or not it's real, right? Whether or not you actually understand how the sun, you know, does photosynthesis or your garden works, at least feeling that way is really important. And so we need to attend to that disempowerment and and deal with it, or there's always going to be this romanticization of nature as a reaction to increasing epistemic opacity. And the political sphere, this seems to have some interesting political effects, largely, I think, rhetorical. I've given a lecture a few times discussing different political ideologies and how they view uh, themselves as returning naturalism. So you could take socialism and say, you know, the real, the way that people really are is communal and, and non-possessive and, and the, the system, whatever, however you want to describe it, came in and perverted them away from the authentic track. And so we have to get back on track. And libertarians, we have this too. We have the way people naturally are is market oriented and the government came in and, and, and sort of perverted the entire thing. And, and in even, you know, even slightly political tales, you see the iconography of naturalists. So take the Hunger Games, right? The capital city is shiny. They wear ridiculous clothes. And out in Katniss Everdeen's authentic natural environment, they're wearing, you know, nice olive colors and browns and they hunt with bows and all this kind of stuff. Firefly, the frontier is always natural. And in the middle is this, you know, 
very steely, very cold and personal alliance. And we think about that with capital cities. So there's just, a, I, I feel like, you know, reading your stuff, I'm like, there's just a lot of political stuff to this that sits in the back of our brains. Like we often don't know we're invoking it, but it sits there in the back. It's tremendously powerful rhetorically. I, I, you know, you, I can't stress enough how powerful that idea is, which is why, as you pointed out, everyone wants to claim it. So you've got people, you know, you got communists who are claiming that barter is the natural form of exchange. And then when you got currency, that was perverted. You've got crypto enthusiasts, bizarrely, but sort of intuitively saying, well, this is spontaneous currency that is bottom, uh, it's grassroots, it's it's the new natural form of currency. Um, and I think part of that, you, you mentioned authenticity. I think the connection to authenticity is really important because people believe deeply that origins disclose essence. And so if you want something authentic, you want to get back to how the author made it. It's all there in the I like etymologies because they do tell us a lot about how words work. And so the further you are from what is natural, the further you are from the original form of the thing. And the and that means it's less authentic. It means it's it's more distant from how we ought to be. The essence of the thing has been corrupted. And so it's rhetorically very powerful to say, well, originally, this is how people did this. So I see I'm, I'm teaching a book right now called The Case for God by a, a popular writer named Karen Armstrong. And one of the things she keeps saying in the book is, well, originally, this is how people understood religion. This is how people practiced religion. The implications is therefore better. <laughs> it's better, you know, it's, whereas you might say to yourself, well... <laughs> Gee, they sure seem to have gotten it wrong back then. Um, glad we have this new form that's better. So that again, this bias towards authenticity and originality has to do with how we see origins and origin stories as disclosing something essential and important. You mentioned briefly in the book vanilla, and I thought it was an interesting way to frame these questions of authenticity and original. So can you tell us about the the indigenous farmers in Mexico and what they have to say about quote unquote natural vanilla. I could talk about vanilla, the plainest ingredient forever and ever. It's just absolutely fascinating. But long story short, I used to believe, and I think most people who are, if you're a chef, um, you've gone out and bought vanilla beans, you often think of them as coming from Madagascar or Tahiti. They are not native to Madagascar and Tahiti. So these natural vanilla beans, every single Vanilla orchid, which is where vanilla beans grow, every single vanilla orchid has been artificially inseminated by hand in order to get you your vanilla bean because the only natural pollinators of the vanilla orchid are these melopana bees that that are native to, to Central America. And you had these early silviculturists, which is a which is a word for forest, so forest gardeners who themselves cultivated vanilla orchids, used them, then had to cure them and dry them. And so one of the reasons I think vanilla is so interesting is that people really want natural vanilla. McDonald's has had to try to get some form of natural vanilla flavor into its products so that they can say that their, their ice cream is all natural. Um, people seek out natural flavors in general, but vanilla has has never been natural. It's always been accessible to us only through human artifice. And, and in a sense, the the history of all culinary innovation is a history of one artificial intervention after another, which is helpful though, because it, it tells us something else about what people mean when they say natural. In, in England, for example, the word natural is regulated when it comes to food. And a part of the definition is traditional preparations. So beer, for example, can be natural if it's prepared traditionally. And so here we have, okay, that's actually not unreasonable. It's not unreasonable to value tradition. 
in the same way that you would value any other kind of, you know, the freedom or beauty or something like that. But we just need to be careful not to confuse tradition or traditional with, for one, totally natural, this idea that, so you don't want to confuse the two. They're actually different things. Traditions are a product of human intervention. And also you don't want to confuse tradition with better, safer, holy. It's not, it is simply not always better. And in that sense, there's a kind of Burkean conservatism that is aligned with that understanding of natural. So Burke himself makes an argument for an evolutionary argument for conservatism in which he says, well, you get these systems and structures that emerge naturally over time and revolutions are bad because they represent discrete human interventions that that go against the the wisdom, the accumulated wisdom of natural political systems that's emerged over time. Um, And I, I think that kind of bias towards the natural in whatever realm you're in, whether it's politics or food, can really get in the way of clear thinking about what is effective or ineffective at achieving the goals that we want to achieve. It seems that, if, so when it comes to natural food, uh, not only might there not be a good definition of it, but what people think is natural is not actually natural. So it, it, it's internally incoherent. It's like, it has no good definition. And even if you applied their definition, probably way more of their tastes and preferences are based in non-natural things that they think are natural due to their sort of metaphysical sense of what is correct. That's exactly right. There are certain areas where I think the word natural is more useful and certain areas where I think the word natural is less useful. In the case of food, I think it's incredibly deceptive and does not help conversation. So I spent a bunch of time trawling through responses to FDA's open inquiry into how natural should be regulated when it, when it comes to food. And often I saw people say, well, natural foods are, are, are made the way God intended them. Um, you see this from some doctors, uh, uh, they're, they're, they'll, you know, the sort of pop doctors that are giving you the natural foods that are going to cure you. Mark Hyman is this in, enormously influential guy who's like, oh, it's very easy to distinguish between foods that are good for you. You just ask, did nature make it? Oh, the avocado nature made and the Twinkie nature didn't make. So we're done. We got it. Um, and it's just, it just seems to me not a helpful way to approach how we think about food. There's nothing wrong with liking, for example, so take epistemic opacity. I love going to the farmer's market. I think it's cool that I can buy food that was grown near me. It just, it's neat. I, I'll drive past the farm where my food came from. That's a cool feeling. There's something aesthetic about that. But to then also assume that I'm going to live longer because I ate this food, or that it's even more sustainable environmentally, or that the footprint would be lower. Those are the kinds of assumptions that are yoked to our metaphysics of natural that are that are false and, and problematic. What about natural lifestyles? Like we get we get that a lot, and um, whether it is you know gardening on your roof in Brooklyn or um wanting to run off into the monastery in the forest and, you know, and live off the land. Like there seems to be this, there's something unnatural about our current lifestyle, especially urban lifestyles. Um, It makes us stressed out. If nothing else, it lowers our health and so on. Um, The the argument you see from like Marxists a lot about neoliberalism making us miserable um, and, and the kind of neoliberal lifestyle is that is that getting something wrong about the idea of what's a natural lifestyle or is there something wrong with seeing 
primitive as synonymous with natural in terms of lifestyle? One one way to think another way to th- another way of the many ways to think about what people mean when they say natural is something that uh, a psychologist, a developmental psychologist, coined the term the environment of evolutionary adaptedness. And it's a vague term, and there's a lot of controversy about it. But in its general form, I think it's useful. And what it means is something like, look, we are organisms. Humans are organisms, and like all organisms, there is there is an environment or a or a set of environments that is largely determinative of how we evolved. Therefore, goes goes the claim departures, radical departures from that environment for any organism, including humans, may be likely to cause pathology or trauma. And that's not an unreasonable approach. So for example, if more if more people's vision is going bad, it's not an unreasonable hypothesis that we are now using our eyes in a way that's dramatically different from how we would have used them in the environment of evolutionary adaptiveness. And then to look there and see if that's true. And then if it is true, then we can intervene, for example, by putting on glasses. Um, what, what seems wrong to me, it was built into the assumption, again, this goes to the asymmetry that I talked about earlier, is assuming that the environment of evolutionary adaptiveness was paradise. That's when it becomes religious. The environment of evolutionary adaptiveness was not paradise. There are all sorts of things that suck about that environment. Kids died by the truckload before they turned five. Um, You had all sorts of just plain ignorance. I mean, one of the interesting things I, I hear a lot of people say things like, oh, we're plant blind now. We don't know what our natural, you know, back in the day when everyone lived in nature, they were so, they knew so much more. And now we can't even identify the stars, which is on the one hand, it's true, right? There are forms of knowledge that have been lost because we don't need them in order to live in the natural world. On the other hand, we know all sorts of stuff now that, that, you know, pre-agricultural nomadic hunter-gatherers didn't know. So to assume that their forms of knowledge are intrinsically better because they're associated with more natural lifestyles, it seems is is a mistake to me. Um, that's just that's just a problem. And honestly, it's something I say in the book. I went, I actually went to Peru. Um, one of the chapters discusses this to meet with uh, Machigenga because uh, I read so many stories. You know, are hunter gatherers are they truly enlightened? Are they the wise ones? Should we raise our children like them? Should we eat like them? Should we not wear shoes like them? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I was like, well, what are they like? What's their life like? And you know, well, it was the funniest moment. I tell this in the book, but I'll just give it away to everyone who's listening because it was just so funny. There was this. They had just gotten lights solar powered lights for the for the kind of main area of this village where the machigenga had had settled this this group of machigenga i'm talking to this guy and i said hey you know how do you feel about these lights and to me i'm just thinking to myself cuz it's very hard someone who sees constant light it's just wow this is a you have no artificial light here stars shine so brightly and now you've got this big spotlight in the middle of the middle of your town square it must be terrible right now so what do you think of these lights and he says he says they're they're good. I like them. I, you know, I said, well, why do you, what, why? And he just looks at me like I'm insane. He's like, okay, we can see at night now. I mean, it's just like, it was like, it was just so, so ludicrously obvious to him why one might want to be able to see at night. Um, so one of the funny things that I noticed in these contexts of the natural lifestyle is that they, they give you an appreciation for the artificial things. I mean, all anyone wanted in this village was salt, for their food, because their food tastes better. And it's I, I, one, one sad thing, in my opinion, about the romanticization of, of natural lifestyles 
is that yes, it discloses some things that we might miss. We overestimate how great our lives are and there are, there are things that we're blind to, but it's pretty great right now. I mean, we eat unbelievably tasty food and it, it can be easy not to appreciate that if you're constantly blaming it for, for all of our woes. There seems to be something to the idea of acting in accordance with your nature, uh, which is maybe more essentialism. Uh, in a, you know, obviously, Aristotle uh, had these ideas in terms of his his ethics, but also, as I mentioned, you know, previously the, in the political sphere, if we're talking about what's the proper political organization, it, there's it does it makes sense to make an argument. It's like, well, the problem here with you know Marxism is that people don't do that. They just they, that's not how they are. They don't do that. And and in the libertarian sphere, we make the argument that p- people inevitably, naturally, truck barter and exchange. In the words of Adam Smith, and that's how markets are. They just come about if you have people and property rights, and bang, there you go. So, is it is are those like valid political arguments in the sense of you know there, or is that also committing a kind of natural fallacy for making a, a normative argument for a certain political or economic system? I I think it is not a fallacy if it's a pragmatic argument. So Robert Sapolsky told me this way of thinking about what's natural. I think is really wise, where he says natural doesn't tell us what's right or wrong politically, but it can tell us what's going to be more or less difficult to achieve. In other words, there are some things about humans that are just going to take a lot to overcome. They may take centuries of taboos and (laughs) regulations and folklore in order to finally get to the place where we no longer do them. And there's other things that will be, that, that go sort of with what it is that humans do, again, do naturally. And so, you can argue, and this is a sim- similar again to the environment of evolutionary adaptiveness, that a, some kind of political system will be difficult to execute or impossible to execute because it is so unnatural. But it's not, it's not, that's not bad. Unnatural doesn't mean bad. In this context, it means something more like doesn't come easily to humans. Um, and I think we would agree that there are plenty of things, no matter how libertarian you are. I mean, I guess you could like, this is sort of like anarcho-libertarianism that would, that would embrace this. But I think no matter how libertarian you are, you would agree that there are some, there are some interventions that are good precisely because they, they restrict our nature or change our nature or go against what it is that comes naturally. Um, and so uh, yet another context in which if we clarify what we mean, by natural, if if what we mean is that which humans, uh, what's easy for humans to do, or which goes with humans' instincts, and therefore requires less labor in the broad sense of the word on the part of a political system, so it's gonna be more efficient. I think it's a great way to make an argument. It's a bad way to make an argument if you say something like, "In in the nature of humans is disclosed." <laughs> the normative forms of government, which simply align themselves with whatever it is or emerge from whatever it is that humans do spontaneously. Well, that brings up another thing that you talk about a bit in the book, which is natural law and and the argument that there is a, a kind of law or rules that can be drawn from what is natural. So can you tell us what, just briefly, like what natural law means in this context and how the discussion we're having now kind of applies to that area. 
So for the for the for the five listeners who just had aneurysms because they're already they're like, but natural law doesn't do what he's about to say it does. Uh, actually, you should look at uh you know the natural law theorists who don't commit the appeal to nature fallacy. This guy's such an idiot. So I'm going to just preempt all of them and say, look, I get it. I've I've I I waded through that swamp for a very long time. I understand there are also you know there are all sorts of ways in which. Natural means variously things like rational. Um, it means all kinds of stuff. And there are all sorts of ways in which natural law theorists have very sophisticated accounts of what they mean and how it doesn't commit the appeal to nature fallacy. But long story short, I don't think they get out of it. Even Aristotle doesn't get out of it. Um, at some point, an assumption sneaks in that that the natural form of a thing is normative. It just it, it always happens. I have not yet seen a natural law theorist that that doesn't allow that back in. And even if the theorists themselves don't make that mistake, on the ground, that's how it plays out again and again. It's really clear in, in Catholic teachings on reproduction, for example. So if you look through papal statements on reproduction and, and what constitutes good forms of reproduction and sexuality and bad ones, naturalness in the in the garden variety biological sense of what is natural is is always threaded through there. And so if what natural law is, or at least the way I, I would talk about it, the idea that in the form of things as they exist without human intention, we can find normative claims about how people ought to be, I just think that's a bad, it's a bad way of figuring out morality. That's just not, it's not a good approach. There are all sorts of ways in which humans are naturally that that are fine to dispense with. I mean, reproduction is the case, I think, is a really good one, um, is a really good example of where I just think it's obvious that some kind of control over reproduction is, is a good, it's a human good. And so where you end up in the Catholic Church, in, in my opinion, at least, and, and this was true in the 60s, the Catholic Church had no idea what to do. They liked the rhythm method. It was a, a great blessing because it meant that they could finally allow people to not to, to be able to control their reproduction. But they also had to say something like, well, the natural end of reproduction is babies. So then you got in this big mess, which was, well, why is it the case as, as, as one, I think it was Mencken, quipped that you can use mathematics, but not chemistry uh, as birth control. <laughs> Um, and I think it's a really interesting point. Uh, now, of course, neither of these is natural. Neither the rhythm method, which was only revealed by God in the 20th century, or condoms are natural. Um, and so for me, the best way to get around these objections is just to sidestep that as a kind of source of norms and just talk about what's good for people. Is this good for people or bad for people? Does it achieve the ends we want it to achieve? And if you, you can make all kinds of arguments against birth control that that don't involve some kind of secret you know, deduction of norms from the way humans naturally are. All this, this sort of pall of natural thinking about natural and organic and authentic things in our head would seems like it creates or can create some pretty bad government policies in terms of the kind of things that people demand. You, you mentioned birth control. Uh, environmentalism seems like a place where people, if they're too enamored with Thinking about what's natural versus what's not natural, they might get caught up in bad policies. Uh, there's a pretty good discussion debate over whether or not paper bags or plastic bags are better mm -hmm. for the environment because of the transportation costs of paper bags versus the, you know, you can just fit a bunch more plastic bags on a truck. But it's paper. 
it's natural. So that seems like it's good. So people are going to vote for paper. Those are a few that popped into my head. Is there any other places where you think that these kind of fallacies really lead government policy astray? I think a classic, a classic, not classic, I mean, classic based to sound old, but a, but a very relevant contemporary example is nuclear power. Um, I, even people who were sort of previously anti, I think middle of the road people are starting to, I mean, the IPCC guidelines all assume nuclear power is going to be a part of a clean energy uh, bill. And I, I think, again, understandably, that nuclear power represented a kind of hubris. So if you think about genetic modification and nuclear power as two, two sides of the same coin, and here's what I mean is that these basic building blocks of reality in the, in the human, you know, in, in, in organisms, it's DNA and in the, and in the world, it's the atom. And I think there is a sense that we are playing God when we intervene at this very basic level of construction. It's both epistemically opaque for a lot of people. It's really hard to understand what it would even mean to get energy out of an atom um, or to modify DNA in a way that breeding animals is, is pretty obvious or burning a log seems pretty obvious. And so solar energy also feels epistemically transparent, even though that's actually very technological. The batteries that are used are, you know, we're not even there yet, right? We're still trying to develop these technologies. But you look at the panels, you hear the word solar, you look at the wind farm, you think, ah, wind in my hair, sun on my skin. I get how that works. Nuclear seems like playing God. I associate it with bombs. You know, I think there's a lot of good debate to be had about the place of nuclear energy in, in an environmentally friendly energy package. But for a long time, that place was denied simply because it was perceived as incredibly unnatural, the growing, the, you know, the glowing green slime. And I, I, you know, I'm, not, I'm no expert. I, I'm not an expert on nuclear energy. What I'm, what I'm an expert on is how forms of rhetoric, or quasi-religious rhetoric in this case, can distort our understanding of science. And this happens with you know, natural immunity in vaccines. It happens with natural energy, natural gas, uh, solar and wind versus nuclear. And so, again, this is just yet another context in which I think if we got over our attachment, metaphysical attachment to the idea that natural is good, we would just be able to think more clearly, which is what we want as we approach these very complicated problems that affect all of us. Thanks for listening. If you enjoy Free Thoughts, make sure to rate and review us in Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. Free Thoughts is produced by Landry Ayers. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, visit us on the web at libertarianism.org.